Brothers and sisters, there is a word that God has for us found in maybe an unlikely passage of Scripture. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles, whatever form, format you have on your iPhone or your Android device or just a regular old pew Bible. First Chronicles chapter 2. And we'll lift up verses 1 through 4. I don't know about you, but I am glad to be found in the house of the Lord on this day. I am glad to be able to worship in this holy assemble with my brothers and my sisters to lift up God's praises, to worship him in spirit and truth. So 1 Chronicles chapter 2, 1 through 4, this is what the Spirit has to say to us on this morning. These are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, God, and Asher, the sons of Judah. Er, Onan, and Shelah. These three, Bathsheba, the Canaanite, bore to him. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, also bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. On the strength of those few verses from that genealogy, we just want to talk about Tamar's search for righteousness. Tamar's search for righteousness. And we'll be referring back to Genesis 38 as well. In Bucci Machetta's classic novel, The Joys of Motherhood, She tells the story of marriage and motherhood during the colonial period in Nigeria. In one section of the novel, the main character, Nuego, has a sharp disagreement with her husband, Naefi's junior wife, Adaku. At this point in the book, it is the Second World War. Naefi had been conscripted into the colonial army. He's gone. Money had been tight before all of this, but now it's more scarce with many children to feed, clothe, and send to school. A breaking point between the two wives was inevitable. In the disagreement between Nuego and Adaku, the latter revealed that Naefe had always favored Nuego. Adaku felt neglected emotionally and financially. After this confession, Adaku dropped a bombshell. She cursed her chi, which was her personal god in, in, in the Igbo, I-G-B-O, the Igbo uh, worldview. She cursed her chi and exclaimed, I'm going to be a prostitute. She said later, as for my daughters, they will have to take their own chances in this world. 
I'm not prepared to stay here and be turned into a mad person just because I have no sons. As this portion of Emicheta's novel relates, Adaku's decision to depart from her situation to go it alone and become a prostitute highlights the narrow choices women had in late colonial Lagos, Nigeria. Adaku also pinpointed how our Igbo culture had defined a woman's worth as the mother of sons. In a colonial system that was inherently patriarchal and overlaid upon a pre-existing patriarchy that governed the actions of men and women among Igbo-speaking communities, Adaku exercised what little agency she had. This story reminds me of the situation Tamar found herself in in an ancient Near Eastern context governed by patriarchy as well. Like Adaku, Tamar exercised what little agency she had. And I want to put forth the argument this morning that Tamar's exercise of agency was for a just and a redemptive purpose. And what seems like a horrendous and distasteful decision was one that had great redemptive impact as Tamar is an ancestor of King David, who is the ancestor of the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to first look at the significance of Tamar in Israel's genealogy. As Old Testament genealogies go, the inspired writers included women sparingly. At this point in the text, Tamar is the fourth woman named Keturah, who was Abraham's concubine, although she is listed as, as, as his wife in Genesis 25 and 1. She's mentioned. Timnah, Lotan's sister. Lotan was the son of Seir. That's she's mentioned. Mehetabel, the wife of, 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 of the Edomite king, Hadad, are all mentioned in chapter 1. All of these women appear elsewhere in the book of Genesis. Timnah appears in the genealogy of Esau's progeny in Genesis 36, as well as Mahatabel, which signifies that the writer of 1 Chronicles used the genealogies in Genesis as primary sources. But it is Tamar who figures prominently in the narrative in the book of Genesis, chapter 38. The Chronicles date from the post-exilic period of Israel's history. Israel, but also Judah, particularly, had been exiled in Babylon for over 70 years. That's about two and a half generations. These folks were cut off from the land of promise, cut off from temple worship, cut off from the sacrifices, but not cut off from God's love and care for them. So these genealogies are important here to reacquaint God's people with their ancestral history. But it is also, they're also there to point to God's faithfulness to his covenant people despite 
their unfaithfulness. And since no Messiah had come, the genealogies not only point to the past, but they also point to the future. The Savior of God's people is yet to come, but he will come. The audience of this text, or to the audience of this text, they would have known about Tamar. And she is central to the unfolding story of Israel during the days of the patriarchs. Her place in the narrative challenges Judah's familial authority and places an emphasis on how women were marginalized during that age and beyond. And what a woman had to resort to in order to recover her own sense of human dignity and worth in the eyes of the society. So I want to shift now to Genesis 38. I'm not going to read any particular passage from Genesis 38. If you want to turn there, you can turn and follow. But with Genesis 38, I want to center Tamar in Judah's narrative. Because oftentimes when we read that passage, we are centering on Judah. Because we have this shift in the genealogy from the 12 sons of, 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 of Jacob and then we shift to Judah. And we see that Judah is the center part of the uh, centerpiece of the story. But I want to I want to decenter Judah here and place Tamar in the middle of this narrative. So in Genesis 38, Tamar is mentioned as part of a narrative about Judah. About Tamar, we know nothing of whose daughter she was or where she was from, we can deduce that she was from an Israelite family or a Hebrew family. Judah chose her to be wife to his son, Er. That Er was the oldest son, and the Er, H-E-I-R, Er, it was important for Judah to choose a wife for him wisely. So this implies that Tamar was from a good family and that her reputation was impeccable. We don't know how long she was married to Ed. But what we do know in both the Genesis narrative and also from the First Chronicles genealogy is that the Lord put him to death owing to wickedness. And this wickedness had to be of a serious nature. We don't know. The texts are silent upon what he actually did. But it had to be serious. God took him out. So owing to Ed's death, Tamar was a widow. But in that context, that ancient context, there was a way that the dead man could have an heir. This is the, the practice of Leverite marriage. It's, it was already in practice. We don't know how it developed, but it was already in practice in the days of the patriarchs, but codified into Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25. So the practice of Leverite marriage entailed that a widow in her father-in-law's house would be given in marriage to the next brother. 
so that the dead brother would have an heir. Now, the child would not belong to the next brother, belong to the dead brother, so that the line, the lineage would be unbroken. So we see this happening in, in Genesis 38. So the next brother in line is Onan. Judah commands Onan to do what was right for him to do. Basically, go in to your sister-in-law, who is now your wife, and raise up seed for your brother. The Genesis text says that Onan was fine to have sex with Tamar, but he refused to impregnate her. This is like PG-13 for our, for our kids. Yeah, y'all parents, y'all might talk about the birds and the bees when y'all get home today. I don't know. <laughs> but he refused. And this was a grave sin because he was not just sinning against Judah. He was not just sinning against his dead brother, Er. He was not just sinning against Tamar. He was also sinning against God. So imagine how Tamar felt here. This is our opportunity to have children but also to have a boy child who would be the heir. The line would would be perpetuated. Imagine how she felt as her new husband, Onan, would go in but refuse to do his duty. She felt used. She felt used. We don't have to go so far to to imagine how she felt in this situation. She felt used. She felt objectified. She felt sexualized. Theologian Alexander Abbasili asserts that Onan's actions were a, quote, grave injustice meted out against Tamar. In fact, he goes on to say that it was a sexual injustice. But this injustice, this sexual injustice was seen by God. And what did the Lord do in response to Onan's sin? Well, he put Onan to death. The Lord God exacted vengeance upon Onan for refusing to do justice to his dead brother and to Tamar and also to Judah. So Onan is off the scene now. He refused to do his duty. Tamar now is twice widowed. But there's hope. There's hope because Judah has another son. There's another son, Shelah. 
And by obligation, Judah is to give Shelah to Tamar as husband. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. That was the practice. But now, Judah's thinking, I've lost one son. I lost my oldest. I just lost Onan, my second oldest. I have one son left. Tamar must be a black widow consuming my sons. I have to hold on to something in my life. I have to hold on to the last available heir to perpetuate my name. So he's thinking about this, and he decided that he would withhold Shelah from Tamar, but he didn't tell Tamar that. He told her to go back to your father's house and just wait till Shelah grows up. So his choice is a blatant disregarding of Tamar. It is a shirking of his duty, his obligation. Again, a close reading of the text states that Judah had no intention to give his son Tamar, um, to give his son to Tamar. So in his mind, he would consign her to perpetual widowhood and perpetual childlessness. Now, if that, those two things would place Tamar in a horrible situation in that context. Because in that context, as well as other contexts historically, if a woman, a wife especially, is childless, the blame goes to her. Not to the husband, but the blame falls on her. And society looks at her a certain way. And will concoct all types of evil things against that woman. So he was putting Tamar in a horrible situation because he was trying to save his own skin. But here's the thing. As the narrative progresses in Genesis 38, Tamar knew that Judah had forgotten about it. She was in this, 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 this state of being between and betwixt. I'm no longer in Judah's house. I'm in my father's house. I have no husband. Therefore, in that, in that context, I have no protection. I'm just languishing. So, she knew, as time progressed, that Shelah had grown up. Either she could see it, we don't know how far she was from Judah's, from Judah's uh, estate, we don't know. But somehow, way, she knew that Shelah had grown up. And she knew that Judah had no intention of giving him to her. She knew that Judah had lied to her. So, in the, in the course of time, Judah loses his wife. And he mourned. But then he went up, he was going up to Timnah to 
to, to shear his, his sheep. So he, uh, 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 Tamar found out about that and, and, and really realized that, well, Judah must be all right now. He's no longer mourning his wife because he's going up to do some business. He's dusted himself off. He's taken off his, his mourning clothes. He's on his way to do regular business. So she concocted a bold and daring plan. She would veil herself to conceal her face, and she would position herself by the entrance to the road that led to Timnah, which would have been a position a prostitute would take. So what was she thinking here? What was she thinking? It, it seems she hadn't seen Judah in a long time. So how did she know if she assumed that position in that particular space, how did she know that Judah would ask to have sex with her? Was she aware of how men like Judah behaved? Judah is a widower now. Been a long time, my man. And as men in that, in, that, in that era, as men in this era as well, they will look for an outlet. And they will see what's around them. And lo and behold, Judah acted according to plan. And from the text, he was well-versed in the procedure. You know, after the, the act was done, he was ready to leave a pledge of payment with her. I'll give you my signet. I'll give you my cords. That will ensure you that I will send you your payment. In this case, it was agreed upon a goat. So Tamar's plan was to keep these signifiers of Judah's identity. And that would identify his paternity of the child. But I find it interesting, and you should find it interesting as well, that she, she knew that she would become pregnant. We, we, again, we, we, we're, not, we're not told anything in the text about this. We don't have all of the details, but we can say one thing. That even though this seems as though, like, it seems like Tamar has gone off the rails and is doing something despicable in the eyes of that society, and even in the eyes of our society, we cannot deny that in this messiness, in this, this whole scenario, the hand of God is upon Tamar. We can't deny it. God has something cooking. Now, Tamar cared nothing about the payment of a goat because she felt she knew that she had received her payment. She had avenged herself. So the narrative picks up a little bit later in time Word had gotten out that Tamar was pregnant. 
Word got back to Judah. Hey, hey Judah, your, your, your daughter-in-law is playing the harlot. She, she's pregnant through harlotry. Now, here's Judah, who had cast her away, refusing to give Shelah to her. This man got the nerve to be all upset. What? Bring her to me. We're going to burn her. I mean, adultery in that context was a capital crime. Now, according to the law, again, we, we, this, 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 the, all this narrative predates the giving of the Mosaic law. But in the Mosaic law, a woman found in adultery was to be stoned. That wasn't good enough for Judah. He wanted to burn her, which, which makes us realize just how incensed and also how, 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 how mean-spirited this man was. And also how sexist he was. So he believed, as others had thought, that Tamar had been immoral. As a widow, she had been pledged to Shelah, so for her to have sexual relations with another man would have been considered adultery. But in the face of public execution, Tamar revealed Judah's folly and hypocrisy. Basically, she said, I know who this baby daddy is. So she pulls out, uh, whoever these things belong to committed the act that caused me to be pregnant. Judah's gig was up. He was the father of her child. He had been reckless. He had been neglectful. He had treated her like trash. And he realized all of this because he makes the confession that she, Tamar, was more righteous than he. Let's raise a question. Wait, wait, wait. The reader said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. She, she, she pretended to be a prostitute. She concealed her identity. She lured a trap. She, she, she trapped her father-in-law, right? Stone her. Execute her. Judah says she's righteous. So in the context, it denotes that her actions were just. She was seeking justice for herself. And this implies that Judah had been unjust toward her by withholding Shelah from her and having her languish in widowhood and childlessness. She fought against injustice, a particular injustice against her as a woman, as a woman. And here's how we can know that Judah's pronouncement of Tamar's righteousness was a right pronouncement. It's what happens in the next months to come. That encounter with, with Judah, 
not just produced one son, but two. They were twins born to Tamar. So for all of the mess that she went through, all of the turmoil, all of the embarrassment, all of the uncertainty, God gave her double for her trouble. I think somebody needs to hear that this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you have been through. But I know one thing is for sure. If you are in Christ and you are in covenant relationship with God, he sees you where you are. He's directing your course even right now. And the bitterness of your present will turn into the sweetness of your future. I know I'm right about it. So during this Women's History Month, we can claim that Tamar, as a woman, was a justice seeker. She was a justice seeker. Judah and Onan had treated her with gross unfairness. They were selfish. Judah was self-protective. He believed he could run over Tamar's rights as a woman. His actions were unjust and misogynistic. Onan objectified Tamar and sexualized her. Now, Tamar's agency can be seen on two levels. First, she fought for her own rights as a widow and a woman. But, oh, there's a greater purpose also. When it seemed as though the line of Judah, the perpetuation of that line was in jeopardy, when it seemed as though Judah himself didn't care about whether his line would go forward, it was Tamar who fought so that that line would be perpetuated. She was fighting to preserve the messianic line. She was seeking the promised seed that would come from the woman. That's what she was doing. That's what she was doing. So she went to any length. She went to any means to make sure that that line would be perpetuated. She was seeking her Savior. And my sisters, on this morning, I want to encourage you to keep on seeking and keep on fighting for justice in light of sexist structures in society and also in the church. Sisters, your Lord is righteous and he loves justice. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and he loves the righteous. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he's on your side. I heard Paul say it, if God be for you, who can be against you? Jesus sees you in your struggle. Jesus died to free you from your sin and to liberate you from sinful societal structures 
and make you citizens of his kingdom. You, my sisters, are not second class. You are chosen by the Father. You are loved by Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are equal in Christ, and you are gifted in Christ. And I want to tell my brothers, receive that word. (laughs) Receive that word. Come alongside our sisters and, and fight for justice in their own causes. Call out sinful and sexist things that operate within our churches. Don't be satisfied to just stand there and not come alongside our sisters. For Paul says that in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female, there is no male, there is no female. Sisters are equally redeemed. They have equal standing in the sight of Christ, they have equal standing in Christ's church. Let's not sin against that. And let's cultivate a climate of affirming our sisters, affirming our sisters in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we confess that we have acted unjustly toward our sisters. Men in this church, in the church of Jesus Christ at large, have placed barriers around our sisters to circumscribe their ministries, to circumscribe their service, to try to box them in according to what we perceive their giftedness and usefulness is. So, Lord, we pray and ask for forgiveness for that right now. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts be pricked and that we be sorrowful and that we will repent. Lord, We thank you for Tamar, who fought, who fought so that Jesus would come. Jesus would come to die for all of his people, to die for a people from every tribe and nation and tongue, that he died to create a bride without spot or wrinkle. So, Lord, we are thankful for Tamar, thankful that you use her in such a mighty way. So we pray, Lord, that you would use our sisters here in this space in a mighty way. Help us to, to shrug off tradition and be attentive to what we hear from you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.